0: even struggling to know how to get this out this morning because the Lord has gotten into my chili in such a deep way as a result of this one verse and it says this Christ is the head of the body the church he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have supremacy When I ask you this question, I think you'll know where we're heading this morning and why I believe this morning that if he gives you the spirit to hear what is being said, it is going to get in your chili, which means it's going to mess with your life. And that is this, what has supremacy in your life? What has headship in your life? What rules you? What controls your life? What is your bottom line? What is your cornerstone? What is the thing that your entire life is oriented around? Well, as I started studying this, um, it's funny how easy it is for me to see this in other people. But not have it exposed in myself. I saw it just this week. My child, uh, two boys, Hudson is one of them. He's two and a half. Um, two-year-olds, this is a, a normal phrase that is the end the household. That's mine. Everything in our house is now somehow his. It's completely under his possession. And the other night we had some friends over, and their two-year-old child, so we see the battle about to happen here, uh, wanted uh, the ball that Hudson was holding, uh, and Hudson was telling him, just very straightforward, this is all mine. Like, you cannot. Use this and here comes the craziness of me. Um, I'm going to step in here. I'm going to step in in front of our friends and show them how the pastor handles conflict. Uh, and I said this, and I thought it was really sharp, to be honest, but it, it's kind of gross know another sense, so I'll tell you in a sense. My response to this was this. Like I grabbed that and I pulled it off. said, let me tell you something. Do you see that ball? You see this house? You see that food you just say? None of it's yours. It's all mine. <laughs> everything you see right now is mine. And Daddy has agreed to share this with you. And so you can share that ball with men because this is mine. Now it sounds great, right? You know? Awesome. Good parenting, uh, but my response exposes something about myself. Why did I not say this? This isn't mine, this is the Lord's. This house is the Lord's, that ball is the Lord's. Everything your father has is given to him by Christ. And so, I share it with you and you share it with who else? Ever else. It's free to me and to you. It exposes the very thing that I was changing my own son for. Exposes itself in my own life. This is true for you. You don't have a life. You have a life that I give you, but me, I'm in control. This is mine. I am supreme. There are two things I'd like for us to unpack today in what Paul is saying here. The first is this Christ is the head. The second thing is that he is the head of something particular. And Paul says here that that's the church. And Paul uses a metaphor here and says that he refers to that as the actual body of Christ on which he is the head. So, we're going to ask you a couple questions. What does it mean that Christ is the head the head of the church? And why in the world does that matter to you and me this morning? Before we do this, I'm going to try to kind of compact this. But this is important. It gives the context for the importance of this statement. Why, let's remember for a second, why is Paul writing this letter to the Colossians? In verses 9, 1, 9 through 14, he says all these things. I haven't stopped praying for you. I'm asking God to do something for you. Don't miss that sentence. That God has to do this for us. Fill you with the knowledge of His will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding that you may have a life worthy of the Lord, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, that you would have great Endurance and patience that stems from power. His might that would lead to joy as you, as you face trials. That you are qualified to share the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. You have been rescued from the dominion of darkness. We have to stop and consider this before we actually look at this in one verse. Why, after declaring his intention... What he is hoping and praying to see birth in the lives of the Colossian church, why does he stop and the first thing he does is launch into a big monster paragraph about who is Christ? Does it, why does that matter? I'd suggest this. That because he knows that all of what he is praying for, all of what he is hoping to see birth in the lives of the Colossian church is dependent first and foremost. On this one issue, <clears throat> who is Jesus? Now, you've maybe heard that question asked, so and we ask that question a lot, but it's a question that even as I began to ask it this week in this area, it began to a lady bear because I realized that is not a question I ask but nearly to the amount that I need to. Your understanding, my understanding of the person of Christ is absolutely essential to you experiencing all of these things that Paul's praying for. So let's stop and consider this for a second. If this is true, how much of my life, how much of my time, how much of my energy is spent thinking about the person and the work of Christ? Most of us would say that. I mean, we read that paragraph. I read that paragraph and I'm just like, I want that for my life. I want to know the knowledge of his will. I want spiritual wisdom and understanding. I want to bear for that for I want to be strengthened and have great endurance and patience and joy trials. I want all those things. So if that's the case, why is it then that I find myself so rarely meditating on, deeply considering, immersing myself, complete saturation of my mind in the personal work of Christ? Why is this so unfamiliar to me? Well, I think that we will talk about today, probably not in its entirety, it will give us some of the reasons why this is difficult for us. Last week, Ray talked about this. If you didn't hear the sermon last week, I would encourage you, and I wish we could somehow put the slides with the sermon on the podcast, but talk about these first few verses as Paul's walking into who is Christ, who is Jesus, the immortal and invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For him and by him all things were created, things on heaven and earth, visible, invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things were created by him and for him. And in him all things hold together. Paul's first launch off into who is Jesus, it doesn't just start in Matthew when you see, okay, here comes the star and the shepherds and oh, the sheep and the magi and what is frankincense and myrrh and all that, he takes us all the way back to the creation of the world. The foundation for the person the Christ starts there. Now this is a beautiful picture. Don't miss this because we're about to talk about 118. A beautiful picture of the scope, the magnitude, the weight, the gravity, the grandeur, the hugeness of who Christ is. Evie, Brooks, good friend, we were talking about all the slides, you know, like, here's the giant orbit of the fifth, you know, Hubble telescope picture of five million gazillion light years away that be showed last week, and she said, as we started, Raimi started reading some of these statistics, and what do you do? You start, oh, geez, you start feeling incredibly small, and said it this way, I wanted to puke. I thought it was such a good a good reaction because it's just like oh oh my goodness like I can't even conceive half the stuff you're reading but don't miss what Paul's doing here he is setting the stage for us swallowing big gulp because this Christ as the head of the church is a big gulp for you and me he is setting the stage for us to be even able to Take a bite of this. When faced with the vastness of the person and the work of Christ, the reciprocal feeling is finiteness, smallness. And let me suggest to you this morning that is okay. That is a correct posture for you and for me. It is a realistic view of ourselves that we desperately need to have. And that, by the way, Everything who we experience outside of the gospel wars against. Don't have a small view of yourself. In fact, have a great big view of yourself. And in fact, the goal of your life is to have everyone else have a great big view of yourself. Last time I was in an airplane. I talked about this last time. Uh, I'm not going to talk about that in sentence again. But it was actually on one of the non-bumpy flights. Um, This happens almost every single time I get into an airplane. And it's when you're kind of in takeoff indoor landing mode, you know, how you're kind of cruising about, I don't know. You can see things, I guess is what I'm getting at. But if you're in a city that you know, you start to try to, like, where am I at? Have I ever you know, oh, that kind of looks different from up here than it does when you're in your car, obviously. But Um, but, uh, there was a point we were in Denver, we were flying out to Alamosa, and we're kind of getting into the mountains and there was this whole community of houses kind of in these little clusters, kind of like a single these really kind of houses. And there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of houses. And uh, I kind of started to count them and in the midst of it, I really, in my mind, uh, I felt like the Lord said, you'll never know any of those people. And I was kind of like, huh? He's like, just, just look at the day, that's one, one little neighborhood outside of Denver. There are hundreds, uh, maybe even thousands of people who live on that one little area, and you will never know. They'll never hear you talk. They'll never know what you do, and you'll never know what they do. It made me feel very silly about how important I think I am. It made me feel very small in a good way to realize that this world and things going on in this world that I will never, ever know about. And I'm not in control of. It. Well, there are two faces, or two choices when we're faced with the reality that we're going to talk about. And we did them last week. You can either worship and wonder, you step into it. You step into, you fall under the headship, under the rule. You let it shrink you to the point to where you say, I worship you, Or you run and retreat. Those are the two options. Those are the two things I see myself do. Day in and day out. Sometimes I worship. my God's grace. Some days I let it shrink. But a lot of days I run. And I retreat. And here are the two things I think we do. And we probably do more. What do we run and retreat to? Two things. Illusions. Or ignorance. Oh, stop talking about how big the universe is. Because if I just don't know, it's just not real. Right? We plead ignorance is bliss. Or illusions, things that we have to construct, things that we do construct, that give us a false sense of reality. It is only from this posture of humility, from this finite place, that we can receive Colossians 1.18. Here this Paul is fighting against you and I retreating into the illusions that we make. So Colossians 1:18 again says this: He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything, in every thing, every aspect of my life, of your life, he might have supremacy. Two things: First is this: Christ is the head. It says it in here. He is first. He has supremacy. There's an interesting uh, statement in here. And I'm going to let M.T. Wright kind of explain it to you. Because he could probably explain it to you a little better than I could this morning. He is the beginning. The firstborn among the dead. I want to read something that he wrote um, pertaining to that. It says this. It says, with Jesus' resurrection, a new age has dawned. The new man has emerged from the old humanity, whose life he shared, whose pain and sin he has borne. For Paul, as throughout the entire Bible, sin and death were inextricably linked. So that Christ's victory over the later, over death, signaled his defeat of the former sin. First born here, particularly when taken closely with the arche, it's a Greek word beginning The sense of beginning implies that Christ's resurrection, though presently unique, was happening in these guys' time. Christ's resurrection, though presently unique, will be acted out by a great company of others. Those of us who are in Christ. Paul believed that God brought forward the inauguration of the age to come. The age of the resurrection into the midst of the present age. In order that the power of the new age might be unleashed upon the world while there was still time for the world to be saved. Jesus' resurrection was thus accomplished so that in everything he might have supremacy. That which he is by right, creator, don't tell me if I don't know it's not real, if it's real. That which he is by right, he became in fact by what he did. God's plan was not merely to sum up the old creation, but to inaugurate the new creation in and through him. Christ is first. His work of atonement, the redemption that was accomplished through his death and resurrection, affirmed who he really is. That Jesus was God in flesh, that he is first, that he has supremacy over our lives Christ is the inauguration of a new age. Don't miss what Pentecost is saying here. What Paul is saying here. in the present age. He's the new age exploding into the present age. And we who are in Christ, we are the purveyors. The displayers. The people who, in whatever the heck you do, it's not just this. If this is your understanding of the church, it's Midtown Fellowship. It's the place where you come and worship this morning. Ugh, shame on us It's such a small view of who we are. You are the church wherever you find yourself. And we are the purveyors. The people who explode this new reality into the life of this world. We're the purveyors of the new age. This is the work of the church displayed through our various functions in the body. Before we leave this and discuss a little bit about the second part, what is the body? He's the head of something. What is this body? Just stop and ask this question again. What is your first? What has supremacy practically in your life? Whatever your first is, I'm borrowing this term, is your functional head. If money is your first, then it is your head, therefore it rules you. What else? Your emotions? Your feelings? The praise and the affirmation that we all seek and desire? Control or security? Fear, doubt, self? How can we tell? How can I tell? How can you and I tell what is supreme in our lives? Well, I'm borrowing this uh, from Tim Keller. Good stuff. He he gives us four things. And I would write these down or I can give them to you later. Four ways that we can practically tell what is our first. The first is this look at our imagination. Your religion is what you do with your solitude. In other words, the true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when there is nothing else demanding your attention. What do you think habitually about to get joy and comfort in the privacy of your own mind? Your imagination. Two, your money. Another way to discern your heart's true love is to look how you spend your money. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew 6.1 Your money flows most effortlessly towards your heart's greatest love. In fact, the mark of an idol, the mark of something supreme, the mark of something absolute, is that you spend too much money on it, and you must try to exercise self-control constantly in that area. The third thing is this. What is your real daily functional head? What are you really looking for? What is your real God, not your professed God? A good way to discern this is how do you respond to unanswered prayers or frustrated hopes? If you ask for something you don't get, you may become sad and disappointed, Then you go on. Hey, life is not over. Those things are not your functional masters. But when you pray and work for something you don't get, you respond with explosive anger or deep despair. Then you may have found your real God. And fourthly, look at your most uncontrollable emotions. Is there something here too important for me? Something I must have at all costs? Am I so scared because something in my life is being threatened that I think is a necessity when it's not? My imagination, my money, my unanswered prayers and frustrated hopes, my uncontrollable emotions. All of these things exposed to me as I worked through those things, prayed through those things, was reduced this week to tears over the things that have supremacy in my life, that are oppressed, that rule me, they control me. What Paul is saying here emphatically is that If you are in Christ He is first guys He is the head of you Because you are a part of the new humanity Without his work would have never been realized This is why when anything Functionally or practically Moves to the center Or in a priority place in your life Or in my life There is great So, what does this mean for us today? Why does this matter? I'm looking at my time. He has set us free. Galatians 5.1 tells us that. We are free, but free to what end? It is freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm and do not let yourselves be burdened again by any yoke of slavery. This illustration may totally tank. (laughs) So I'm just setting you up for that, but I hope it won't. I've called it Muse versus the Indigo Girls, or Muse without the Indigo Girls, which is probably sufficiently confusing to most of you. Muse is a new song, I'm not familiar with their music. I just saw them at U2 and got hooked. Um, new song, The Uprising um, You see this it's, it's, it's all over our culture And that is, is that revelation of control is happening People are seeing that I'm under control I'm under the influence of things
1: And, and I don't like that
0: I don't want to be I just find myself making decisions and Moving in directions That I'm not even thinking about Because I'm just images or whatever is Selling me on the fact That this is what my life is supposed to be about So their song, Uprising, I so badly want to sing this right now. Um, Here's the lyrics.
1: They will not
0: force us. Now, I don't know who he's talking about when he says they. You get the sense it's kind of capitalism, market, place values, whatever. They will not force us. in here and it says this, the closer I'm bound in love to you, the closer I am to free. What a beautiful sentence. I think it's at the heart of the gospel that what has happened in Christ is that he has bound us to him. But that is the ultimate freedom for who we are in this new humanity. I'm free not because I'm free to do whatever I want. I'm free because you have purchased me. And brought me into this new kingdom. The kingdom that I was made for. The second thing is this. Let's talk a little bit about this kingdom. His headship. His rule over us. It involves a plan. It's not just aimless. 2 Corinthians 5 talks about this. This is one aspect of the work of the church. But he says this Therefore if anyone is in Christ He is a new creation The old is gone The new is come All of this is from God Who reconciled us to himself Through Christ And gave us The ministry of reconciliation That God was reconciling himself To the world in Christ Not counting men's sins Against them And he has committed to us The message of reconciliation We are therefore Christ's ambassadors As though God Were making his appeal Through us Ambassadors, reconcilers, people who are the purveyors of the new humanity, the new kingdom. Wherever we go, business, art, culture, school, family, marriage, not marriage, wherever. How did Christ accomplish this? I'm not going to read every one of these these scriptures, but I'm going to give you them as I read you this. He accomplished it because we belong to him. This is well before we see the actual person of Christ on the scene. In Deuteronomy 7, you are a people holy to the Lord. You are his treasured possession. We are his possession. How did he make us his possession? He bought us. He he bought us. He purchased us with his blood. Acts 20. He bought us with his own blood. Acts 20. Why did he buy us? Don't miss this. Love was the motive. Not this frontal obligation. Not, uh, my people are the last people picked for kickball. And so therefore, I guess I'll make them on my team. Love was the motive. Ephesians 2.4, just because of his great love for us, that he made us love in Christ, even when we were dead. What else did he do? He raised us in the of life. Colossians 2.12. You have been raised with him. This is huge. He is for us. You can't submit I cannot submit to any authority that we fundamentally don't believe is good and good for us. You can't do it. Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. So He doesn't just do this. Then He goes even further. He seals us. He implants in us the Holy Spirit. Hadn't believe you are marking him with a seal, this is Ephesians 1, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. But lastly, and this is really speaking to the purpose, he has made us the body. And this is another thing I'm borrowing from entry, right? He He's made us for mutual interdependence upon one another and organic dependence upon himself. Organic dependence, first and foremost, headship of Christ, John fifteen five. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing of value. <coughs> Mutual interdependence. So we're dependent on Him. Like if I cut my own hand off and I threw it over there, it would still be my hand, but it couldn't do anything. Without the, some of them, a doctor in here explaining that. Um, neurological synapse firing. I just used the word synapse. It's awesome. Um, <laughs> organic dependence. And it creates this mutual interdependence. The body is a unit. This is First Corinthians 12. Made up of many parts. They all form one body. First Corinthians 12, or First Corinthians 12, 18. He has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them. Listen to this. Just as he wanted them to be. And he goes on to say, The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable. The parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. This is hard for us. We live in a culture that doesn't function this way. We live in a culture that says, unless you have like a heart, unless you like the heart or one of like critical organs, you have no value. Role equals value in our culture. The new kingdom, the new age, that is not the case. Your value is secure. It is entirely secure in the person of work of Christ. And so I'm free to just me. I'm free to just be the role that I am and nothing more. I don't have to spend my life. Tirelessly trying to become an ear when I'm a hand. Do you know how much energy you put into this? Trying to be like 15 parts of the body rather than just celebrating the fact that the Lord has made you uniquely for this role and that your value is not at stake if you just do that. I learned at a very early age, use your gifts, Dave, and use them to set yourself apart from everyone else. I didn't learn that that wasn't the purpose of my spirit, I guess, until I was like 28, that I fulfill fill a role in something much, much bigger than myself. Midtown, you fulfill a role in something much, much bigger than this house and these people. Airplanes, look down. Africa, everywhere, the kingdom of God advancing. We have no context for this. We live in a culture of rampant individualism. I'll commit to being a part of that body as long as it kind of feels right and fits. But as soon as something happens that, ooh, makes me a little uncomfortable, what do we do? I distance myself. I'm a rampant individual. Well, a couple things to close. And I would suggest we ask. And we've asked it twice, and I'm going to ask it again. What is your first? What is your center? Andrew Del Blanco wrote a book called The Real American Dream, a meditation on hope. Don't read it unless you want your world messed up. But he says this about your center. When I say center, I mean it in the gravitational sense of the word. The point around which we orbit and toward which, if we lose velocity, we fall. What's got its gravitational pull on you? Is it Christ? Is is it the deep love displayed for you? In his person, and in his work on our behalf? His purchasing of us? Three things I'd suggest. How does Christ stay in this position? Because Paul isn't asking, is he him? He's saying, he is him. Ask for revelation. Randy talked about this a few weeks ago. Ask God, show me my firsts. Show me the things that are supreme in my life. That I am still so and to yield to you. My idols. And I'd suggest that that is not just a, a prayer slash meditation. I would suggest that the word, that your actual study of scripture plays a huge role in this. Hebrews 4.12 says it like this. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates, even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitude of the heart. You and I need God's word to discern the thoughts and the attitudes of our hearts. So it's not just going to pray. It's not just meditating. It is that. But it's allowing the Word to do its work, to cut through the crap that you and I are just mountains of illusions of false realities that we have built about our lives. After we get the revelation, it's going to lead to this because it led to this for me this week. Repent, repent and rest. Isaiah thirty fifteen. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. Repent, guys. Repent, turn. Let him do what only he can do. And then rest. And we suggest resting looks like this. Resting, we have revelation, repent, rest. Resting is gazing. Fix your eyes, second Corinthians four eighteen. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, for what is seen is temporary, what is unseen, the things that Randy showed, the slides. It's eternal. Since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above. Colossians three 1. Gazing is what we do when we're resting. Fixing our eyes, our minds, our very selves on the person of Christ. Gazing regularly. And I am making an inference to how you spend your time. Recalibrates our lives to the truth. Of two things. We are his treasured possession. Y'all. We are the treasured possession of the Lord. That is not just a sentence eternal, realistic truth that should shatter us. And when we were enemies that he loved us, that he came for us, and he made himself like us. And then in Genesis 15, what happens when we realize the depth of that? He becomes what he is. He said this to Abraham, I am your great reward. I am what you desire. Let's pray. Lord, I just ask that you would give us the grace to take some of these hard books, That you would reveal yourself in such a way that we would see you as you really are. That you are the head, Lord. Lord, that you are supreme. And Lord, that you don't rule us like a hard-handed dictator. But love is the currency of your rule. The patience, the mercy, that forgiveness are the things you deal in with us. Lord, give us the courage and the grace to let you purge our lives of these idols. These things that we live under the headship of. Give us the grace, Jesus to gaze on you regularly capture our imaginations fixate our minds on you we love you.